modern church movement. You kind of had to lean one way or the other, operating like the early church, kind of the new way of doing things, traditional, uh, the way the traditions have been handed out. Where would you lean? Would you say we're you know, over here, yeah, kind of keeping in step with the early church? Or, I don't know, not so much. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's a really, really, uh, in, not just interesting topic, but I feel like it's an important topic for us to, to look into. And one of the things I do not want to do today, I want to genuinely ask, where do you think we are as a church? And where do you think you are as an individual that makes up this church? Uh, I don't, I've heard the, this passage used to kind of beat people over the head a little bit, and I don't want to do that. I want to genuinely ask, where are we? Where do we find ourselves? And so before we move into that, I want to give just a little bit of a review. Going through the book of Acts, which I believe the theme is making Jesus known, as you remember. In the beginning, it opens up with Jesus commissioning his apostles and saying, I want you guys to go spread uh, my message, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, making Jesus known all over. He says, but before you do that, I want you guys to wait in Jerusalem for my Holy Spirit. And so they were waiting there in Jerusalem, gathering together, praying, spending time together. There was the 12, well, 11, then they elected a 12th. And then they didn't quite elect him. They chose him. That's a, you can go back and read it. Uh, and then there was 120 also of the disciples. So you had these 12 apostles and 120 disciples hanging out there waiting for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And the Holy Spirit, as we know, did arrive. And the Holy Spirit arrived in power. And it says that there was a loud sound like rushing wind, which kind of drew a crowd in. And as they looked around, they saw that uh, the people had these had something like fire over the individual's heads, and they began speaking to the group or the crowd that drew in in their own languages. And so there was a, a big movement of the Holy Spirit here, right, as he promised. He said, wait, and they were in Jerusalem waiting. And when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise, and Holy Spirit arrived. They start speaking in these other languages, and some people were going, oh my goodness, this is incredible, this is awesome, this is amazing. Some were perplexed, and then some were mocking, going, ah, they're just drunk, right? And Peter stands up and starts preaching a sermon. And he says, you guys think everyone's drunk, but this is just what the prophet Joel had foretold, that the Holy Spirit would come and, and be, uh, be upon just regular old people, and that they would prophesy, they would be telling the, th the things of God, and that's what happened. And as that happened, he continued preaching this message. And he said, all this stuff that's going on, it's all about the Christ, the one that you guys crucified, the one that you guys had crucified. And then, as you remember last week, we talked about the fact, as he moved into that sermon, he said, you guys weren't sure what to think about him, but he was raised to life. He's alive now. He's at the right hand of the Father. You didn't, weren't sure if he was a prophet. You weren't, the, the end of Luke tells us that, that, that people weren't sure who he was. He says, now you can see he was the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah we had been waiting for. Their hearts were pierced. They were cut to the quick. It says, and then many of them believed that day. They repented of their unbelief and 
They had changed their opinion. They'd made a turnaround in their heart and their opinion about who Christ was. And they believed and they were baptized and they were added to the church 3,000 that day. All right? So is Christ being made known? And here so far in the book, we're only in chapter 2. <clears throat> well, I'm going to read the passage for today. And then we'll talk a little bit more. I'll pray once more and then we'll dive into some details about it. So then it moves into from this group was added. And then if you'll just follow along with me as we read. And those who gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Again, remember, are we operating like the early church, or maybe not so much as we read this? So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That's the early church. That's the firstborn church, and that's what they were doing. What Peter does here, and this is going to be a little bit of teaching today, I'm going to go into just maybe some stuff that would be a little bit more scholastic, but what he does is he zooms out and kind of says, I've been telling you guys this story, now we're going to zoom out and kind of give you guys like a snapshot of what the church has been doing. Here's kind of what the church is doing. And then he's going to zoom back in in chapter 3 and give some specific concrete examples of how God's working in a powerful way. Well, this guy's healed. Uh, a lame man is, is healed, has been lame since childhood. And so we're going to start seeing the specifics. But here he zooms out and says, check out what the early church was doing. Now, I've heard this passage used, again, to kind of beat up on the attractional church model. And you're like, what is that? Well, it's just pastor talk. There's a kind of two... There's probably many, but two big ideas out there is attractional church, missional church. An attractional church wants to attract people to church. And so we look at some of the modern American churches, and they have, uh, you know, big awesome buildings. Uh, everything's branded. Everything's uh, coordinated. There are uh, cool coffee shops, uh, you know. Uh, everything's Instagrammable. The pastors, of course, are really cool. Uh, skinny jeans, you know, the whole uh, hipster deal. Get some uh, big black glasses and, uh, and all that. Uh, as much as I try, I don't think I'm going to ever get there. But um, so, so there's kind of this idea out there of you want to attract people to church. And there's this heart that, you know, if we do that, and we make the messages really relevant, like, you know, uh, how to succeed in life or, or, you know, how to overcome your grumpies or whatever it is, <laughs> these messages where it's like, oh, that, that fits anybody. Anybody can come listen to that and they'll enjoy it. Then there, it's kind of like a, a way, pathway to Christ. So that's the attractional model. The missional model would be a little bit more like just go be the church out there and go live it 
day to day, day in, day out. It's not all about the Sunday meeting. It's not all about the praise band and the worship and the lighting and the, and the this and the that. And so there's two different ideas out there. And what some people will use this passage for is to beat up on the attractional church model. I don't really want to go there. I think if we look at the history of church, you can look at a lot of things that are not in this passage, whether it would be kind of designating ranks of clergy. We don't see that in this passage. Stained glass windows, we don't see that in this passage. Uh, you know, uh, Hip praise bands, we don't see that in this passage. You know, the Hebrew tattoo on the, on the arm of the pastor, we don't see that in this passage. All that stuff's not in here. I don't, I don't think that makes every bit of those things wrong. I understand why we've adopted a lot of those things. But the thing that we need to come back and look at is like, what is at the heart of the church? What are we supposed to look like as a group? Because some would say, Hey, we're way off track. We're miles from where we should be. Look at what's important to us. Look at the way we're doing things. And others would say, you know what? That was the baby church. We all look different once we age, right? I mean, don't we all look different once we age a little bit? And so, of course, the church is going to look a little bit different as it ages. So we're going to kind of wrestle with this a little bit today. I want to pray one more time, and then we'll dive into a few more details. And what we're going to be talking about is... What are the marks or four marks or characteristics of the church, of this church? So we're going to kind of be looking at some characteristics or marks of the church rather than necessarily just the practices. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you. I do thank you for your son. I thank you for the life that we have. We do want to be a church that reflects your son well. We want to be a body that represents your son in a really honorable way. Show us, even today from this passage, how to do that, where we individually need to change and maybe where even as a group we need to change some things. And pray that you would encourage us and that you would challenge us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So are we miles from where we started? Seriously? I mean this. You decide. By the time we get to the end, be thinking, Kind of here, kind of not there. I am a little bit here. I'm not, I'm not there so much. So the beginning part says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. And so really you could divide this into two big points. And it says they continued steadfastly. That's the idea of like with their whole heart, and they walked in it, they continued with it. And so the idea is the early church was marked by whole hearted devotion to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's one of the things that they were all about, was the apostles' teaching. I think it's interesting. They don't say Moses' teaching, the prophets' teaching. It's the apostles' teaching. And we know from uh, just a few chapters away, I think it's in chapter 4, that these were not educated men. The scriptures say that. Like Part of what drew attention was these guys were coming up with stuff and doing things and saying things and defending themselves well, even though they were uneducated men. And so we have this, what is the apostles teaching? I believe it was the message of Christ, that they were taking the message of Christ and showing how Christ uh, was seen in the Old Testament and what it looked like now that Christ had come and died for sins and sacrificed himself and now raised again 
expecting him to come back and usher in this kingdom. I think that's what the apostles were teaching. The apostles were teaching these things about the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's Lord. And now what does this look like? Because we thought it was this way, but now we realize that Christ is the Lord. And so as they do that, um, this group is marked by wholehearted devotion to their teaching. And then I put fellowship because it talks about fellowship, and it talks about it in a few different ways. The meals, the communion, the meals, and the prayers. And we'll go back and talk about this in just a minute. But for us to just understand and think about, are we wholeheartedly devoted to the apostles' teaching? That this is the apostles' teaching, that the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. It's definitely not my teaching, right? It's as much as Amory doesn't want to admit it, it's not Charles Stanley's teaching. Ooh, burn. Um, it it's the apostles' teachings. We're we're going the Christ the cornerstone, and they're the foundation, and then we just teach and continue to build on and not build new stuff, but just continue to apply the apostles' teaching. But it wasn't just for this group. They didn't just sit there and go, okay, and get their notepads out and start doing that. This early church was not doing that. They continued steadfastly. In other words, their whole lives were wrapped up in this teaching, this idea of the teaching. They were not just learning it. And so their teachings regarding to Christ, I believe that's what the apostles' teachings were. And they had to learn it, right? They didn't know all this stuff about the Christ. These Jews that had just come, they were actually, some of the ones were responsible for sending him to the cross. So they probably need to really learn who Christ was and what it meant now to be living for him. The same could be said for us, right? It's probably important for us. I believe it's one of the most important things we can do in our life is learn who Jesus Christ really is and live accordingly. We need to learn it. Sometimes learning it's the easy part. And then we also need to live it. And they were wholeheartedly devoted to this. And so as we look at this, we'd say, are we wholeheartedly devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are you wholeheartedly devoted to the apostles' teaching? I mean, we could look at it and say, well, we're here on Sunday getting teaching. You don't know how many uh, podcasts I listen to. I listen to podcasts all the time. I go to Bible studies on Wednesday. I have my devotions in the morning. And those, I would say, show a level of devotion to, God, to the apostles' teaching, certainly. I'm trying to, to live that out. I go to a discipleship group, or I'm in an accountability group, or I'm trying to figure out uh, you know, how to walk this stuff out in this area of life now that I'm a parent or whatever it would be. And so do we have those same marks and characteristics in our life, in our church? Are we wholeheartedly devoted to the apostles' teaching? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe for some it's more than others. Maybe for some it's like, yeah, I like a lot of different teachings out there. I mean, you, you should get on YouTube sometime. You know, there's so many different teachings that you could get that are really cool. I like a blend of them. Or you can go, I'm, you know, I am wholeheartedly devoted to the apostles' teaching. But they didn't just stay devoted to the teaching. It was also fellowship. And I believe that fellowship, we're talking about Christ-centered relationship. Actually, the word fellowship has the idea of communion. It has the idea of sharing. And it's not just this idea of fellowship. We usually think of donuts and small talk, right? That's fellowship. Like, hey, come join us on Wednesday nights for some potluck fellowship. Well, it could or could not be. It's really a sharing of life is what it is. 
When we talk about fellowship, it means a sharing. And if I had to put a, a word on this uh, passage, it's really talking about community, right? And, that, and that's kind of a, a really popular phrase to use these days, like, you know, my community and our church community. And it's a good word. I, you see community here for sure. But not just community surrounding, like, yeah, we all like to just get together and we're all, you know, Dodger fans or donut fans or whatever kind of fans it is, but Christ-centered relationships. In other words, Christ is the one who bonds us. And I think that there's a couple things you can see in here uh, on this. One, it said that they, so it says breaking bread together. The scholars like to just really nitpick over this and argue, and they say, some say, it means communion, it's the Lord's Supper, that's what breaking bread together means. Others say, no, it's just a meal together. And really, Luke uses it both ways. You, Luke uses this word in both senses. And the early church actually did both. They would have what they would call love feasts, or they would have a feast where they would get together and have a meal, and at the same time participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. And so that's what they would do, but it was because of who Christ was that was their, the bonding agent was Jesus Christ. And so I think the meals represent relationships, especially in other cultures. It, having a meal together, it helps demonstrate a relationship, and it's really important. If you've ever been to another country before, and if you've ever been to a really poor country, sometimes they will bend over backwards and actually put themselves in a financial strain to, to share a meal with you and to feed your family. And that's a little bit more probably towards the culture there. And it's that there's this idea of sharing a connectedness and a relationship behind just having a meal. And so I think that the idea is there was this fellowship, this Christ-centered relationship. And we have to ask ourselves, is that what we, are we about Christ-centered relationships? And communion, obviously Christ-centered, we're going to celebrate communion today. And as we go through that, I want to kind of help us see the reality that we are a church family because of Jesus Christ. We're not a perfect church family, but Christ gave his life so that we could be made the family of God. So we are a family. And so he's the one that's brought us into relationship. And so this idea, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. Next, it says that they were marked by a powerful and observable work of God. Let's check this out. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now this, you kind of think, what kind of fear? Like, what exactly was happening here? Let me just, so uh, they were amazed, fear, full of awe. I'm going to give like a little commercial for the upcoming weeks. In chapter 3, the very next section, and I would encourage you to go ahead and read ahead, um, but these are spoiler alerts. We see right off the bat this guy gets healed that has, he's been crippled for his whole life, and he's healed. So that's going to bring some amazement, isn't it? And then we hear, as we read in today's passage, where, that they shared all their possessions, right? That they sell their stuff and, and, and try to help others in need. Well, let me just read for you a little bit of what happens in Acts chapter 5. Remember I said he gives this big general zoom out, and then he zooms, in, zooms into specific stories. So he's just made this point. Hey, there's some amazing stuff going on. People are filled with fear. 
And then he's going to go in and start kind of explaining what this looks like in some specific cases. And then the, uh, one case would be this guy's healed. The next case is going to be this. It says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira and his wife sold a possession. And he kept back part of the pro proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a, bought a certain, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, so he's kind of doing what we just saw here, right? Did he give the whole thing, though? No. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in other words, hey, the church is out there sharing things. They're selling things. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife. And he's like, I'm going to sell my property. I'm jumping in on this. And he goes and, in, and, and kind of says, like, here's all the money for our property. But he kind of kept back a little bit, right? He didn't really offer it. And he's, Peter goes, oh, really? Well, it was yours to do what you want. Why are you lying to, not, he doesn't say, why are you lying to me? He says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit that you're giving the whole thing? Don't pretend like you're giving the whole thing. You're not giving the whole thing. It says, and then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Wow, this is going to be a hard one in a few weeks going through this. <laughs> By the way, let's go ahead and pass the plate right now. Uh, it said, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it came about three hours later when his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, I feel bad for this lady. I really do. I feel like they were probably like, don't tell no matter what. It doesn't matter. You, it, like, Let's just keep this a secret. It's just, I mean, you can picture this husband and wife kind of like, we'll just say this, but in case this whole church thing doesn't work out, we want a little nest egg to fall back on. I don't know what's going to happen here. I mean, you, you can kind of picture what this would look like in real life, right? And Peter says, I feel like he should have just said, I just want to tell you what happened with your husband. Now just tell me what it was the real price. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He says, and Peter answered, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So in other words, he's like, so how much did you sell the land for? I feel like it's almost a setup. But, and she said, yes. <laughs> she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Okay, so let's just kind of read that. Fear came upon every soul. That's the zoom out. He's going, hey, some really... Some really interesting stuff was happening here. And so it's, it's, uh, we can look at that and say, well, this was the beginning church. Do we want church to look like that today? And does it matter if we want it to? Should it be? What's, what's going on here? I personally, I'll give you just a little taste of what I believe. I think God was protecting his early church just like we protect our little infants. And he was saying, I want everybody to know that this church is... It, is of me, and I don't want men getting in to mess it up, so I'm going to have to make some loud statements here to make sure it's really clear to everybody. I'm going to be doing some healings. I'm going to make sure people know that 
I'm the one that's given this message to the apostles. They're not just coming up with this stuff. Uh, that you don't, that God is just and right and that God's involved here in, in all this. That's what I believe is happening. But we can't argue with the fact that God in the early church was working in a way that was dynamic, that was powerful, and that was observable. And here it says, fear came upon every soul. And I believe what that's talking about is it wasn't just that little group or those 3,000. I think it had to do with people out, even unbelievers, were recognizing there's something going on here with this group. And for, for us, we would have to say, you know, that these lives are changed, and, and that's just the picture of uh, some of these things that I was telling you about. And Acts 4.13 talks about the fact that the apostles, even though they're not really smart guys, are confounding these leaders. And they're like, man, these guys, there's something different about these guys. Lives were being changed, and everybody noticed it, whether it was the leaders whether it was the people in the church, whether it was the people in the temple when that man was healed, healed. But people were noticing what God was doing. He was working in a powerful way as lives were changed. And I'll just say this, or I'll ask this, are lives being changed here? Remember, we're asking, are we miles from where we're supposed to be or from where we started? Is God working in a powerful, observable way? Do friends and neighbors and relatives see changes in the people here? Are lives being transformed? Maybe not from a cripple uh, to being able to walk, but are lives being transformed? I'd see transformations happening. I would say that it's probably not these kind of show-stopping events, but I would say that it is supernatural changes that take place here in the lives of our people. See it over time. And so we do say, I would say people notice and people take notice of the things that are happening. And it says that they were in awe or there was a respect or a fear. And so you have there devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. God's working in a really, really mighty way. And it was also marked by sacrificial care for one another. Now, let's read this really quick. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Right off the bat, I feel like we need to make a couple disclaimers. This could be the big biblical case for communism, right? Like, this is how it should work. Socialism, it's right there in the Bible. Let me make a couple points on that. One, this is completely voluntary. Or it could be, that you could look at this and go, this sounds like a cult. But it's completely voluntary. You don't see the apostles twisting these guys' arms, manipulating them. You don't see government officials coming in with uh, guns or other kind of threats or taking property away. You see individuals making choices based on their, their own convictions to sell their property. That's not socialism. That's God working among a group of people. And I would say, imagine if our nation worked like that. You wouldn't need to implement any kind of government programs. If people started saying, you know, I really care. I can see my neighbor here needs this. I'm going to 
figure out some ways to, to make some sacrifices to make that happen. And so in no way is Scripture pushing for this uh, a socialistic, commune-type living here. What, it, what it's pushing for is for a heart for others that would be willing to sacrifice and to give up for others. Another thing is this can even be taken way overboard in church to where there are some people, if I just kind of just put it in regular modern-day English, which I would say are allowed to live as flakes and everybody else is having to take care of them, right? That's not what's being promoted. And you're like, well, it says it right there. Well, it also says in Timothy, it talks about the fact that, yeah, we have a widow's fund, but don't give money to just any widow. Make sure that they've been doing, that they were uh, living right, that they're continuing to serve God, that they're doing... Uh, so there's kind of some criteria there. And then in Thessalonians, they're like, Christ is coming back. Let's not go to work. And he says, hey, you don't work, you don't eat. And so we want to make sure we get a whole picture of Scripture here when we talk about these things. It's not promoting communism or, you know, just us just giving handouts to everybody. The church just trying to take care of people that aren't willing to work for themselves. What it's talking about is there are legitimate needs here and some people are willing to sell their own property and their goods and the idea of property is literally their properties like their houses can you imagine that kind of sacrifice i mean that's kind of our that's our biggie right if you bought a house that's your big investment that would probably be the last thing you would try and sell to help somebody out maybe if you were being really sacrificial you would sell a car but to say, you're going to sell your house, your property, your goods, and to meet the needs of those around you. So the early church is marked by sacrificial care and love for one another. And if you look at us as a group, are we marked by sacrificial love and care for one another? I know that there are people who give regularly and that it is probably not very convenient or easy on their personal finances to give. I know there are people that serve and give time and energy and resources to others. I would say, and, and you know what we get one of the quickest responses to when we say there's a, a, a physical need and we say, hey, so-and-so's uh, has a need, you know, we're, we're trying to collect, pass the hat for so-and-so kind of deal. We get a good, quick response. And I personally believe this church is marked by a willingness to sacrifice and care for one another. Are we perfectly lined up with the way God wants it to be? I don't know, but I know we have that characteristic, even if it's in a small form. I think we do have that trait. So they were selling, they were sacrificing, giving for others. It's a demonstration of love and care. They weren't selling so they could get a bigger house, right? Or so that, you know, I just decided to put it all into an RV and travel around. Or, you know, we finally bought that little island off the coast that we were wanting to. They were doing, they were selling their stuff for others, not for themselves. And the early church was marked by an all-of-life worship. And so I didn't really know what term to put on this, but if you read it, all-of-life worship. Continuing daily with one another in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily 
those who are being saved. And so if you look at that, <clears throat> they were going still to the temple. <clears throat> there was a form of formal uh, corporate worship going on, probably the equivalent to us coming to, to church. That's a good thing, formal worship. There are many who just totally forsake formal <clears throat> worship and corporate worship. And it's kind of like, no, it's just me and God, man. And I would say this, this is my time to get to make a plug for this. There are some who, they're like, I don't even like to use the word like, and here I am. They're like, they, they will show up to church two times a month. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but let's just be real. And they would consider themselves regular church attenders. If you show up to church two times a month, you're a six month out of the year. That is the equivalent of showing up to church half of the year. To me, there's, there's something not okay with that because we're a body, we're a group, and you wouldn't detach your organs from one another for six months at a time or for a week on, a week off, a week on, a week off. I know there are various uh, reasons why we do that, but I do believe that formal and corporate worship is important. It's, I, I'm convinced it is. The early church met together. You can read early church historians, and that's one of the things. They weren't even Christian historians, and as they write about, they talk about these gatherings of the church, the gatherings of the church, the gatherings of these people and what they did together. And so it is important, but sometimes we're way over here on the other side, and it's all about the Sunday. And here it says that they did that. They met in the temple, but they were also in, in meals and in houses, which I believe is a picture of relationship and community outside of Sundays, for us Sundays. That's part of it, too. So it can't just be, are you showing up to church on Sundays? I'm all for taking a break on a Sunday every now and then. We do it sometimes. Go out of town or do this or do that. I'm not saying... We don't want some kind of legalistic church attendance here. That's crazy. But at the same time, we don't want it to be just all about a Sunday meeting. That's not the church. We are the church. It's a group of people. The church isn't a building. The church isn't. What time does church start? That's the way we use the word, as if it's a meeting time or a place. Oh, I'm headed over to the church. I use it the exact same way, but that's not the way Scripture uses it. The church is us. And they were hanging out with each other in each other's homes, and they were having relationships with one another. That was a part of it, too. <clears throat> and what were they doing? Gladness, sincerity, and praise. It, it, I just love that they put this. It says, uh, well, I'm still back in five, reading about Ananias and Sapphira. Let me move back here. Uh, that they were... With one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Isn't that a pretty picture? That sounds nice. Just, that sounds like simple living right there. And the church was growing through those kind of things. Simple living. Also, that sense, uh, with simplicity or sincerity is the idea that it wasn't something that was just a compulsion obligation. I gotta go to Wednesday night. Oh, 
It's Wednesday night tonight. What can we come up with? I feel a little like, I, f I feel a little sick. Do you feel a little sick? Yeah. But there was a genuine heart to be together for these people. It was something they wanted to do. They were praising God. They were going with gladness. Maybe even this morning you're kind of like, Sunday. Ah. You know, I was just there at church on Wednesday or whatever it might be. But there was a gladness. Are we marked by that kind of heart and all of life worship that it's really more than just show up on a Sunday or just kind of my own personal quiet time, but it really becomes just our heart is wrapped up in an attitude of worship and praising God, and part of that includes fellowship with one another and relationship. So as we look at that, yeah, you can see this church, and I know this is kind of like working through and kind of like we're, we're, we're teaching a, a classroom lesson here to explain what these mean, but I think it's important for us to get a picture of what this looks like. You had this group brought together out of nowhere, 3,000 people, and what are they doing? They're devoting themselves wholeheartedly to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayers. You should put, prayer, put prayers in your notes, too, there. I left that one out of the notes on accident. But prayers was part of their fellowship. They were praying together, right? And then they were seeing God work in these mighty, mighty ways. God was at work changing people's lives, transforming people, working through people. And I think he does that here. And at the same time, you had this group, and they were sacrificially giving to, to show their care and to their love for one another. And they also had hearts of worship. Like they were about just being worshipful people wherever they went, whether it was in someone's house or in the temple. And you have to say, how do we look when you gauge up the marks or the characteristics? We're not talking about, have you sold your property? Have you sold your property? Did you go to the temple today and pray? How many people's house have you gone to in the last month? Do you have a meal with? I'm not talking about the particular practices. I'm talking about that heart, the trait, the characteristics. Because that is a kind of church that God's going to bless. And remember, I believe the theme of this book is making Jesus known. And when a group lives with those kind of traits and those kind of characteristics, whether you sold every piece of property or not, I believe that kind of group is going to be making Jesus known. And that's what we've been called to do, is to make him known. And so, I personally believe that what this has given us a picture is that the hope of Christ spreads when the people of Christ live the message of Christ. So, that message or the hope or the good news about Jesus Christ is going to move out, and that's what we see happening in this book. But it doesn't just happen uh, isolated. It happens through a group of people, individuals. Any community is made up of individuals. A country is just a bunch of people, individuals. A church is made up of people. And so when a people are living the message of Christ, and I don't believe that this kind of behavior is typical of just people living for themselves. It's people living expecting Christ to return, a kingdom to be established here, with there's a king and a ruler and wanting to live for him. And I think it's really important as we wrap up and we're going to move into communion that even as we kind of gave a glimpse about Ananias and Sapphira, that, that we can realize that the church is not perfect. Our church is not perfect. Your pastor is far, far, far from perfect. You guys are far, far, far from perfect in your sanctification and in my sanctification. But we're a big deal to God, a huge deal to God. 
We're not a perfect group, but we are a big deal to God. The body of Christ is important because he gave his son to make us his family. We're, we are super loved by God, significant to God. A lot of us deal with issues of significance. You know what? He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for me. He calls us the body of Christ. What kind of title is that to give somebody? You're the body of Christ. That's quite a title, wouldn't you say? We're important to him. He gave his son for us. I want to read, uh, kind of we talk about where this church comes from. We're going to move into to communion here. By I'm just going to read a little bit from... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the passage we usually use when we do communion. But I'm going to read a big passage here, and, and you can see how just this is not even a hundred years later. The church has kind of gotten off track quite a bit. Remember how they're going from house to house having these meals and doing that? That's what Paul is talking to this group about. He says, now I'm giving these instructions. I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, for the worse. He's talking about these feasts where they get together and have a feast with each other and celebrate communion. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may need to be recognized among you. In other words, there's some mature and people doing things wrong, right and some people that are doing things wrong. So obviously there's going to be some divisions. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So in other words, listen what you guys are doing. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. So in other words, you guys are coming in here. Some guys are hogging all the food and other guys are getting drunk. This is kind of their, what developed into some of these house-to-house -house meetings. Church is not perfect, right? I mean, here we see right out, this is the adolescent church, if you will, maybe, or, or just the toddler church. He says, uh, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or sorry, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever, now, now listen to this. So he's showing how important the church is. He just got, he just got on them for some pretty heavy-duty stuff, right? And this is how, how important the church is to God. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. If you're sleeping right now, he's not talking about you. He's talking about people that are dying. Like many are even dying because they're not taking the body of Christ and the church 
seriously. God takes the church seriously. It's a big deal to him. You guys, we as a little small Paradise Spring Community Church are a big deal to God. That's, that's what he's saying. He says, for we drink, we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. When we are judged, we are chastened or disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if one is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. The rest I'll set in order when I come. I know I'm going over here by a bit, but I think it's important for us as we take the Lord's Supper to remember it's a big deal to Him, the body of Christ, the people of Christ. Even when we're making mistakes, even when we're not perfect, it's a big deal to Him. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17, He says, you know how we're supposed to see each other? We're supposed to see each other. Let no one regard anyone according to the flesh or according to their own humanness. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Jesus Christ died on the cross. We're going to celebrate that, honor that, remember that. To make us all equals in Him. And when I say all equals, it doesn't mean a bunch of low lives. It means that he made us all new, all part of God's families, new creatures, new creations, cleansed, whole, righteous because of Jesus Christ. So whether our church is off a little or off a lot or got some growing to do, we are a big deal to Jesus Christ. And the death of Christ on the cross is proof that we are a big deal to Him. So with that, I'm going to have the ushers come on up. We're going to pass the elements, and I would encourage you to just reflect on what Christ has done for you as an individual. What He's done for us and who He's made us as a church.